Hey everyone and welcome to the brand new DF Direct Weekly. It is, as the name suggests, our weekly show where we talk about the latest gaming and technology news. Joining me, John Linneman. Rich, it's us again. We're back. <laughs> and we are indeed back and perhaps inevitably, Alex Patalia. When you said brand new there, I imagine the format was so different, uh, but it's not. It's the exact same every week, except with new topics and new discussion. That's right. <laughs> and let's start with the very first of those topics. Okay, so I guess the biggest tech news of the week is that Apple released brand new MacBook Pros and uh, the laptops themselves, I think, look really interesting. Um, mini LED screens, uh, the touch bar has gone, finally. Um, function keys are back, yay. Um, but perhaps the most interesting thing from a digital foundry perspective is that there's new M1 Pro and uh, M1 Max silicon. Um, huge uh, performance gains, uh, maximum efficiency by the look of it. It looks quite exciting. Alex, what do you make of this? Uh, from just a personal perspective, I don't uh, think the only one of us that actually has uh, an OSX system or uh, I guess they call it macOS system, is you, Rich, right? That's right. I have an old MacBook Pro, which I've had since 2015. Yeah. And the reason I have had it since 2015, and um, it is getting a bit long in the tooth now, is that simply put, um, the replacement machines have had issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, first of all, there's the keyboard. Oof. Secondly, there's the, the touch bar. Um, I've got a bit of a philosophy about laptops, which is that I am not particularly keen on PC laptops. But conversely, I am really uh, not happy at all with Mac desktops. So from my perspective, the best thing to have is a Mac book for um, laptop use and a PC desktop for basically everything else. But the thing about these new uh, MacBook Pros is that silicon there is just looking quite immense. And there's actually a really interesting scaling uh, system going on here where you start with the M1 which came out last year and then things I mean certainly on the GPU side things double up we go from a maximum of eight GPU cores to 16 GPU cores on the uh, M1 Pro and that doubles again yeah, yeah. 32 <laughs> GPU cores uh, for the M1 Max so that. we've got like a nice little family of SOCs here the M1 was widely lauded for its um, efficiency and performance seem to be capable of incredible things and now they've basically doubled up with the m1 pro and then doubled up again with the m1 max and they use a unified memory right so yeah absolutely you have a ton yes. of ram for gpu yeah, and, and normal yeah absolutely and perhaps more interestingly um internal bandwidth is like you know on the m1 max it goes up to like 400 gigabytes per second which is which is pretty amazing for a laptop and it actually means that the integrated GPU on there shouldn't or will have certainly mitigated uh, bandwidth contention limitations as we see on the, the desktop side when you have these APUs. So it's a really big departure from what we're seeing on PC laptops whereby um, you typically have dedicated GPU, dedicated CPU if you want performance Everything now has been sort of combined into one uh, sort of almost like a console-like design in a way that everything is integrated into one chip. Everything runs from unified memory. Potentially really exciting. Um, there's been some comparisons to uh, the RTX 3080 mobile 
Um, there's talk of equivalent performance and um, something like, you know, using 60% of the power. I think that was the, yeah, the stat. It's yeah, it's uh well, well, there's some, there's some parts of that though, that are pretty important to mention. Obviously uh, the Nvidia chip is not using the same process node as that. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's uh, that's obviously a big difference. The, the Samsung, uh, density of that eight nanometer and the thermals are uh, not actually very top tier. So NVIDIA kind of went with it back then. I always imagined probably because it was the, the foundry that had the, the sort of the open slots uh, for their GPUs. That's why their GA100 series actually uses seven nanometer. It's different. Um, but uh, I think this is exciting from the perspective of what it means for future hardware, uh, not in the Apple ecosystem, uh, because I don't think this affects very much so most of our coverage uh, in general, because there's not a lot of uh, dedicated uh, macOS experiences that we've covered. And I don't think that'll be changing mainly anytime soon, because I think Apple's gaming aspirations are tied to the Apple Arcade at the moment. And... Uh, that's just the way I look at it. Uh, but in terms of this is disruption for the uh, SOC market and also maybe for the future of PCs and the way we look at graphics cards and the way they integrate with motherboards, maybe as a result of the efficiency gains that we're seeing here in terms of power, it'll lead to new types of laptops in the PC space eventually, because it's just, it does make sense if you're looking at something that doesn't need interchangeable parts to start looking at a system on a chip. Uh, there's no reason you really need to take apart a laptop and put new things in it. So I, I think, in the end, uh, as you know, we'll see what happens after Alder Lake comes out. Uh, but this could actually mean in like three or four years' time that we start seeing very different looking laptops in the PC space. I think because of this competition. Uh, the interesting thing though is, that, I mean, this is all ARM uh, technology, right? This is not x86, and we haven't seen anything quite like this on the x86 side. I mean, obviously the consoles have their integrated SOCs, but uh, they're not exactly well suited to. Uh, performance tasks necessarily i don't know the thing about apple is it's always it's always this combination of efficient silicon with uh their own os experience that allows them to sort of hit these high performance targets in some ways so it's not just the raw performance i think um but i i'm sure plenty of companies are watching what they're doing here on this front and taking notes <laughs> because uh the claims here are very impressive now, I, I think that this is this is going to prove very useful for more like production tasks. Like I could see this being great for video editing on the go, for instance, right? Um, but it's ultimately not really connected. Like you see articles saying, oh, it's like a PlayStation 5, but it's like it doesn't really matter because this is not a gaming laptop. Like there's barely any native M1 games in existence right now. Like, I don't even think Steam works on here currently, or at least not in a native form. Uh, there are ways to run uh, non-native games, but again, you're losing performance through the translation process. Uh, so it's interesting to look at what they're doing, but it really has no impact on the gaming stuff, really, I would Yet. say. Yeah. Well, you know, the big question has always been... Um, when is Apple going to enter the gaming market or enter the console market specifically? They already kind of have tried. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that it's of particular interest to them because the business model is entirely at odds with what Apple does, which is to create 
Um, well, let's consider what PlayStation and Xbox do, which is essentially to sell the hardware at a loss to begin with, and then basically um, to to sell the hardware uh, so they break even, and then they can make some profit from the ecosystem side. If you look at what Apple does, and what we're seeing here in in the world of the in in the world of the nineteen dollar cloth, <laughs> is the it's it's a premium brand, premium. and it's um, the business model isn't about giving the hardware away for free. The closest you're going to get is I think like the Mac Mini, which is quite a competitively priced entry level system, right? Um, but I can't see them making consoles, and why should they have to? Because you know uh, we're talking about what ten million um, PlayStation Five sold so far. Impressive on the face of it, but a drop in the ocean compared to the iPhone uh, market, where I would suspect that the gaming ecosystem there is actually making a lot more money for Apple than PlayStation or Xbox is for Microsoft and Sony. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of like what I find really interesting about the M1 Silicon is that it's state of the art in just about every sort of quantifiable metric based on what we've seen so far and based on what we know of the M1 silicon and how it's likely to scale up. Um, but it's going to require quite a sea change in the way Macs are used and, and possibly pricing in order to sort of make that market more appealing for developers to, to enter. While at the same time, you've got the iOS uh, ecosystem, which is far more attractive, I'd say. For, for a games developer, even if it means an entirely different type of experience. So, yeah, I'm really excited by uh, the Macs. I kind of do want one, but I'm, I, I can't foresee. I mean, here's the thing, right? <laughs> All I really want, I think, I think the um, basic M1 system would be perfect for my use cases, right? Uh, but it, it doesn't have a, an SD card slot on it. So, you know, we do a lot of... Um, work on cameras um, and the SD card slot is kind of essential and my 2015 MacBook Pro has got one. The new models haven't. Maybe next year, <laughs> this is the kind of thing, right? Uh, the, the existing M1 Macs are based on the existing or the older chassis design. I'm kind of hoping that maybe next year the basic M1 machine will actually come with a decent port selection. Um, and these new mini LED screens, and then maybe I'll buy in. They've already kind of uh, rolled it back a little bit. They've added some additional ports this time, and they've brought back stuff like the the MagSafe. When you've got a Pro machine, you kind of need an SD card slot. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think they've gone far enough. They, they need many more ports to make this a proper Pro machine. Yeah, and um, going back to your point about the Pro audience, I actually think this is going to do really well there. Um, some interesting design decisions on the SoC side, for example, you've got, as per the latest iPhone, actually, um, hardware accelerated ProRes encode decode, um, which I think we'd kind of love to have. I mean, you've kind of got to have it in a laptop because the um, computational requirement to encode ProRes is significant. So to have that hardware block on there, I think is great. So the heat generation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that wouldn't yeah. work. That's, I'd actually could, uh, consider that editing on one of these things is probably going to be quite joyful. Uh, it's not really on a Windows laptop at the moment. <laughs> I think uh, Audi did some DF Direct edits. Yeah, <laughs> he did not have a great time doing that. 
even on a laptop though, like you, your screen real estate is much uh, crunched down regardless of the resolution. And for me, like I know John uses multiple monitors, same with you, Rich. Uh, I still think this, you know, like you need a really high res large screen to take advantage of like usual Premiere editing for me to make it feel good. I don't like yeah, the 10 4K you know. editing. Yeah. You, you know, if you don't have a big screen or multiple monitors, you're missing a lot of detail that's in the preview window that actually it's, it almost makes the video look completely different when you actually export it and look at it at native resolution. So I don't even think it's that important. This, the preview is something, but it's more like just the real estate, like having all of your different sequences open and the different panels with all the tools, like that stuff, uh, on, when, when crunched together, it makes it much less legible and easy to use. And it feels claustrophobic almost, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. I mean, I, I suppose that they want you to buy their cinema display for like $10,000. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know what it costs, but, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know what it costs either. I really want to see a review of the, uh, the $19 cloth. <sighs> it's on back order now. It's sold out. <laughs> I think, um, the other thing, but there's always kind of like, um, a bit of weirdness in, in Apple design, right? I mean, the legendary, uh, design fail is the is the mouse yes. with the USB charging port on the bottom. So, so you can't. You can't well, <laughs> but this time we've got the notch or the Apple. Do you pen. want a notch on a on a on a laptop? No, no, I don't. I mean, I have one on my phone, and I already hate it. By the way, the notch stuff I think is not a big deal. I mean, it kind of sucks, but like if you look at the other prior Macs, that area where the notch is was just completely black before. It was much much larger. So they've essentially shrunk the bezel, right? So I'd imagine what would happen is if you're running like a, a well, not that you can play games on here, but you're running something like that on there, uh, it would just be a black area up there so you wouldn't even see the notch. And then the actual OS itself takes that into account. Isn't the point that it does intrude onto actual screen real estate? It's not a part of the bezel or anything. Uh, it does, but the, the UI is designed around it. Yeah, the, the OS X UI is definitely. And if you use like widescreen content, presumably it just draws just below that little notch and the area next to the notch just blacks out. So it just looks like the original bezel. So it basically the idea is that it they sort of nest like the file edit whatever menu bar stuff up there next to the notch. So you're kind of getting more regular screen real estate that would have typically been used by those extra bars, right? Yeah, it has to be then for that to work because otherwise you're exactly you, you know uh, cutting off content there. I mean, notch aside, I just think uh, that my use case doesn't apply to this. But for those who are interested in it, it's very inter uh, it's you know very interesting that way. I want though. I don't think <laughs> they have like a lot of specs here that still need to be proven out. Um, you know, you can compare it. You have to com you can compare it to a mobile RTX 3080 or whatever on a very uh, slick looking graph with numbers that don't actually correlate to anything. But you need to show it off in uh, common use programs like the ones that use CUDA. You need to show it off in the games, I guess, uh, and things like that. Uh, so right now we're obviously just dealing with presentations and really awesome numbers. But as we've seen in the past before, uh, upping the core count, upping the bandwidth on a processor does not always lead to linear speed increases that you're used to uh, in this day and age. So I just want to wait to see the reviews. But yeah. Yeah, and I'm actually interested to see if there is a sort of graphics testing uh, regimen that could be applied that actually delivers these results or even just hints at the potential, right? Because I think that's the sort of exciting thing here is the it's not so much what these chips are doing, 
as to what they're potentially capable of doing um, going forward. And this is kind of like one of the reasons why we don't really review um, iPhones or mobile uh, phones in general anymore, um, simply because the, the games and other sort of use case scenarios you have are designed for a mainstream audience with much less capable um, uh, silicon. So what you actually end up with is maybe you know, a game that runs almost flawlessly on the iPhone 12, running flawlessly on iPhone 13. You don't really get any kind of appreciable um, uh, indication of what the silicon is actually capable of. And I don't think you do until like, you know, a couple of years further down the road. It's quite interesting, actually, when um, we were looking at uh, Fortnite on um, mobile, um, Epic basically said, well, you know, we could run Fortnite at 60 frames per second on the last iPhone. The reason that we the reason that we don't is because um, potentially the device could overheat and um, so, and their battery life implications. So we'd rather wait until the next process load and then you get your Fortnite at 60 frames per second, which is quite an interesting outlook. It doesn't really tie into, you know, getting the absolute best performance out of the silicon available if they're kind of gauging things in real life scenarios in that way. Also, uh, while you guys were talking, I did check on the screen resolution stuff. Like the smaller one is like 3024 by 1964. That is definitely not, a, it's a much taller resolution. So it is not like typical widescreen. So I think the use case we described is exactly what they have in mind, where if you're running like widescreen content, the, the top just blacks out basically. One of, again, one of the reasons why I really like the, the MacBook Pro is it's a 16 by 10 resolution. Um, it really helps uh, versus 16.9 in terms of better screen, screen real estate. That's why I'm using a 21 by 10 monitor myself because <laughs> it's a, you know ultra wide with a little bit more height. It works. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Next topic. Wow, this one is really interesting. It is God of War. Finally, it has been announced. It's coming out on PC January 2022. Isn't that when Uncharted is coming out as well? Uh, maybe, maybe that's a little bit later. Um, but essentially, we have got Sony Santa Monica's uh, the beginning of the Nordic saga of Kratos. Well, sorry, Kratos. <laughs> Kratos. <laughs> Kratos. Uh, Kratos. <laughs> the, the breakfast cereal we know and love. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've got um, uh, new graphics features and uh, all of the usual PC stuff, unlocked frame rates, ultra-wide support. Alex, any thoughts on this? And what about these features that are being added? It's an interesting one because we're looking at a game designed around the PS4, which at this, at this point in time is, you know, really old. Um, it's probably going to scale, assuming that the porting is done in a reasonable fashion internally by the studio, which it sounds like it is. It's going to scale really high on PC. So these extra features uh, like DLSS are mainly about from from my perspective on uh, most even the mid-range gpus of today are going to be all about hitting super high frame rates uh, more than 60 fps and that's what i feel like that's about the extra other things they mentioned about like gtao and ssdo while i actually don't know what the original ambient inclusion was in the original game it was just obviously something that could run well enough on a base ps4 and base uh PS4 Pro, I guess I should say as well too. So it's probably not of the highest quality. Uh, GTAO, uh, Ground Truth to AO, was made by Activision for the Call of Duty series uh, there, and it's much closer 
to, like they say, ground truth, uh, ray traced admin inclusion in terms of the way it doesn't create halos in the usual way. Um, SSDO was something made back in the day and really only originally adopted by Crytek, but the original version of SSDO actually has light bleed into it, uh, like color bleed accounted for. I don't think they're probably using that version. It's really hard to say what these <laughs> extra settings will do to the image quality in the end because, you know, I, I've only seen the game as it looks really on PlayStation 5 in my time, really. I think there'll be nice little added benefits, but the main appeal here, I think for most people, is just gonna be the unlocked frame rate experience. And that will be the, the game changer, so to speak. And that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Uh, on a philosophical, you know, meta level here, I'm looking right now at the GeForce Now leak. We've got Unch Uncharted Legacy of Thieves edition on there. Uh, God of War is on there. And since then, We've also had the uh, Grand Theft Auto remasters uh, being announced and a couple of other titles like, um, uh, what is it, the, uh, I forget, there's, there's a couple of other smaller titles that were also on there as well. And I think this basically just points out very succinctly that that GeForce Now leak is probably 100% accurate to the titles that exist in the, the GeForce database that have been, had development on PC at some point in time. Uh, so I think we should, in the next year or two, definitely expect some of these other titles there, like Horizon Forbidden West and GT7. And definitely Returnal, because that seemed always kind of like a PC title anyway, in my, in my opinion. Uh, so I think we're just gonna have to be, you know, getting uh, ready to hear more of these announcements as time comes on. And it's always so strange how they, they announce these. There was little fanfare, little announcement. The thing that came up first was actually the Steam database being updated before the announcement actually happened. Uh, so that's always pretty funny. Uh, for some reason, Sony really loves just kind of like throwing these out like the door, uh, like at the last second uh, without giving any press notification usually. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. I'm excited. I'll definitely cover it and uh, cover it full as I can. So on a uh, sort of more global level, John, what are your thoughts about Sony and PC in general? I'll be curious to see then if uh, Sony does kind of decide to make the jump over to the more Microsoft model and start releasing games day and date. I have a feeling that will not happen, um, but I don't know. It, it seems to be do going well for Microsoft in terms of, uh, you know, actually making money. Um, but they're also doing the Game Pass stuff, which is totally different. And yeah, I just don't know. Um, it's in such a weird spot right now. Well, there was that um, interview with uh, Jim Ryan at uh, GamesIndustry.biz Live, where um, he was kind of hinting about what the future is for PlayStation. And it was very similar to what... Um, uh, Phil Spencer at <laughs> Xbox was saying, which is essentially they're creating this world-class entertainment, um, but they're limited by the fact that they can only supply that those experiences to console users, which you know amounts to um, you know at the moment PlayStation Five, 10 million units thereabouts, and there's hundreds of millions of uh, potentially billions of players out there, and he was hinting that they want to actually bring those experiences to more people. Now, how do you do that? The number one um, sort of uh, strategy would be a cloud-based uh, solution. We know that Sony does have a cloud deal with Microsoft, who are working towards pretty much the same 
um, objective. And that does require a PC version because I can't imagine Sony <laughs> installing PlayStation 5 hardware within Microsoft data centers, it, it, just in terms of scaling, just in terms of finding those audiences. You need the infrastructure. And I suspect the reason why you would make a deal with Microsoft is because they've got that infrastructure. So yeah, the PC is going to be essential to realizing this stated strategy. Um, I'm kind of, I don't know, the concept of playing, I mean, it's the quality of the games which makes these PC ports quite exciting, right? Because God of War to this day remains a really good, really fantastic game. But it is an old game. It's like, you know, it's going to be well over three years old by the time it arrives on PC. And that might place Sony at a sort of competitive disadvantage against what everybody else is doing in the PC market at some point. Now, at the moment, I think the titles stand alone. Um, but what have they got to lose by um, uh, putting those games on PC? Because I can't see that it's going to take away from the console audience, because fundamentally, I think there's a, there's a degree of overlap, but I think that they're two very different markets, right? Yeah, that's the way it's usually been, uh, at least on the dedicated fora that I frequent, where you have users that own all these systems, but there are people there and a vast majority of them that just kind of only play PC games or those that kind of only play uh, a game on PlayStation 5 or those that only play it on Xbox. So you're not really going to be taking away any of the audience. And I think that's something that Microsoft had to learn by going through the Xbox 360 generation and slightly the beginning of that Xbox One generation where they're like, oh, actually, we're not doing anything uh, negative towards our Xbox audience by bringing these out on PC. And they also you know, had the same, uh, I would say, questionable fan uh, uh, you know, uh, outrage when they announced things like uh, Killer Instinct coming back uh, to PC back in the day and things like that. Uh, but it didn't actually mean anything in the end. Those are just a small subset of, small subset of users that get upset about these kind of things. Uh, the most people are actually just happy uh, that the games are being played by other people like I am. And I think in the end, uh, they did recently acquire Nixies and uh, all of the, you know, uh, as far as I understand from that interview that was with Hammond Holst, they had uh, the, the mention in that interview was, oh, that's why we brought on Nixies at a, stu a studio with an amazing PC porting track record. And we really love Nixies work on PC, by the way. Um, and I think that's what their, their prerogative is going to be. It's going to be about bringing a close to date and date big title to PC at some point. I don't know which one that'll be. Maybe it might be Forbidden West. I think that's a that's a pretty smart model actually, and that's how Nixies traditionally seemed to work with like uh, Crystal Dynamics in the past, where Crystal was kind of left to build the game as they pleased for whichever their target platform was, and then Nixies did the the other work to essentially ensure that it would run well on the PC. Uh, and I feel like that's good for everybody, and they're obviously very experienced at partnering up with the developers creating these games. So. Uh, with what with, with what you're saying there, what they're trying to do here, I think that partnership makes so much sense and is really key going forward. And that's that does lead me to believe that they probably will start releasing more games closer to the initial release date on PC. So maybe not day and date, but I think it'll be closer. But I do think we've we've nearly reached the end of cross gen for them. Like once these 
I think once they get the games announced, like God of War 2 and stuff in Horizon out of the way, I don't think we're going to see too many more PS4 versions. I think it'll be PS5 and PC. I think Dreams is the big one for PC, um, just in terms of potential, in terms of what you could actually do with that PC port and the reach that it could have. I think that would be absolutely phenomenal. Um, but let's move on. Some might say that this is something of a non-story, um, but essentially there was a story that emerged that um, the next generation version of The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt had been uh, rated and certified, and the implication was that we were going to get that port sooner rather than later. And it was like, way, yay, happy days. We, uh, we sounded the Tom Morgan klaxon. <laughs> because he's, he's so into the Witcher three ports. Witcher three, and, uh, yeah, yeah it's like does. okay, you know, ready your ready your backup footage for comparison purposes on this one. <laughs> um, but then, um, literally a few hours later, we had a tweet from uh, CD Projekt Red. Uh, I'm going to read it. Uh, we have an important update regarding next generation updates of Cyberpunk 2077 and The Witch 3 Wild Hunt for consoles and PC based on recommendations supplied by teams supervising the development of both games we decided to postpone their releases until 2022 uh, current target for t Cyberpunk 2077 is the first quarter of 2022 second quarter of 2022 for The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt so second quarter for The Witcher Second quarter of 2022 for The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. So this ratings stuff appears to have been somewhat premature. Uh, they finish off their tweet with apologies for the extended wait, but we want to make it right. Alex. Uh, since we're dealing with two different things here, I'll start with Cyberpunk because that has a more controversial outing on consoles. Uh, the next-gen versions we're pretty happy with both on Series S, X, and PlayStation 5 in their current form. They're very playable. Uh, they do not have any of the eminent issues to the same degree that the base console versions have. PlayStation 4 Pro is a bit better these days, I know that. Um, but, you know, what this is all about is, I think it's gonna be about getting a 60 FPS experience on consoles uh, that works really well natively. It's more targeted. So I think uh, traversal around the city will probably be performing better in these native versions. And I think there will be a dedicated 30 FPS mode that adds in one of the ray tracing features from PC. And I'd imagine they'd probably go with the emissive lighting because you know the you know that's like that's the real core of the game is you're outside all the time. The emissive lighting really helps out. Um, yeah, and I think uh, for The Witcher 3, this one's curious because, you know, the game's pretty old at this point. And the unfortunate CD Project Red hack uh, labeled this as Witcher 3 RTX in the folder name. So I think it's actually going to be a rather intense difference. It's done by Saber Interactive, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, they've, they've been doing a lot of uh, games recently that have some pretty core changes in them. Crisis 3, Crisis 2, Crisis 1 Remastered added in, Spogey, and all these other things. So I think this is going to be, uh, you know, The Witcher 3 is a seminal game, uh, huge on PC, huge on console back in the day. And I think this is actually going to be some pretty big changes in there in terms of graphics because the the kind of open world design of The Witcher 3, the, the famous downgrade, was because instead of having manually set up global illumination set up all by the artists in the game world uh, and the expense that they would have in terms of uh, development and performance, they went up with like a very 
light semi-systemic version of like cube maps that update around the game world and things like that. And that, if you were to rip that out and replace it with something more systemic like ray tracing, handling a lot of the lighting in the game, you would actually have a big uh, graphical quality upgrade at the same time as not having a super impact on the arc design because it's, you know, it, it was already very light in terms of how much effect it had on the artwork in general. So I think we're going to see some pretty cool stuff actually there regarding that Witcher 3 uh, re-release. I don't, what are they calling it? Is it called the Witcher 3, the Wild Hunt remastered? What it does it have a name? Have I don't know. But either way, it doesn't have any. Yeah, but I, I think that's going to be really cool. I, I don't know. What do you think about it, John? You covered Witcher 3 back in the day. What what would you like to see done to it? I mean, I, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Is, uh, I think ray tracing features are critical to sort of revive the look. But also, you know, I don't know if they have, if they're putting in the time to change some of the assets around, but I've always had issues with things like the way they render foliage in that game. It never quite looked right to me. Um, and just, you know... I would like to see like per pixel motion blur on, on characters, for instance, that would help a lot because the animation itself is fine, not exceptional, but it's fine. And I think just adding that would help accentuate it a lot and just look better. Um, you know, just things like that, I think would be adequate and sort of transform the visual look of the game. Uh, also adding higher quality HDR support would be nice. Uh, so uh, I don't think they need to overhaul it more than that. Not that that's not already a decent amount of work, mind you. Um, but it's more so... It is interesting to me though, that this got pushed back further than the Cyberpunk delay. I kind of expected it to be the inverse. Um, but I'm sort of heartened that they're essentially taking this time again. Uh, because it's very obvious last year they got burned by... I would say shareholders and, and top men at the company were responsible for releasing it in a state that I'm sure none of the actual developers wanted to release the game in. Uh, and I don't think, I think they got burned so bad by that, plus the leak that they don't want to take chances this time. I don't think we're going to see these until they are actually ready. Um, just for that reason. So they can't they can't afford to to make that mistake again it's just it would be the death nail especially with the console version of cyberpunk by then the next current gen then next gen machines will have been over a year old and i think people are expecting a lot from it and i think the potential there is the the potential is there to deliver a lot uh and just adding like the emissive lighting alone would dramatically change the look of the game as we've seen on pc and just bringing back some of the some of the detail that's missing because the console versions are rather sparse in comparison. Uh, just fewer things on screen, fewer NPCs. The whole thing just feels pared back and, and off in some way. And I think there's potential to bring all that stuff back. Yeah, I mean, Cyberpunk 2077, if you look at what they're doing with the um, next generation consoles or current generation consoles at the moment, they still seem to be hitting CPU bottlenecks, which is why we have fade drops on uh, Xbox series consoles. And um, it's why we have uh, the somewhat uh, interesting lack of NPC density on PlayStation 5, uh, which does run better. So, you know, it seems to be a causal link there between uh, the density of the city and the performance of the game. You ramp it up on Xbox, you get a performance drop. Um, 
when you're looking at how the next generation consoles are used in backwards compatibility mode, I think you're still getting all of the CPU performance. So it's just the GPU side of things that is problematic, which you know is eminently scalable. But in terms of getting that density back, I do think it's going to be the 30 FPS mode, uh, which we're kind of speculating about here that will actually bring back some of the splendor of the game. Um, but yeah, the possibilities there, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of cautious about this. Uh, the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, I'm more excited about this on PC because we've seen the ambition that CD Projekt Red had for ray tracing with Cyberpunk. If they're sort of backporting all of their ray tracing work that they've done in Cyberpunk to The Witcher 3, um, with uh, specific enhancements for that kind of content. I think it could be really exciting. But again, I think we're probably looking at like a 30-60 divide there um, to, to, to actually keep 60 FPS, which I think is important for a lot of players, but also to actually utilize the, uh, the next generation features. Uh, again, I agree with you that actually waiting for this rather than punting it out ASAP is absolutely the right strategy. Ooh, this one's just come out of nowhere. <laughs> Literally, the docket has been updated yeah. <laughs> in real time. Um, yes, I updated it. John has updated it. <laughs> and it is Half-Life 2. It's getting updates to yeah. the Steam Deck. Uh, we actually had a question from a supporter saying, hey, we haven't really heard much from you about the Steam Deck recently. That's something we can possibly talk about as part of this discussion. But John, what's this all about? So essentially what happened is Valve quietly has updated Half-Life 2. So this is half, you know, the Half-Life 2. Uh, and they've made some interesting little tweaks to it. Uh, firstly, they have added the option to increase the FOV uh, to 110, which I believe was not the case before. They've Max also... Max 85 maybe last time? Yeah, it was, it was limited. And now they've also allowed for ultra-wide resolutions to uh, correctly display the UI. Those are fine, but the main thing, and I think this is what ties it more to the Steam Deck, is that they've apparently shifted it over to Vulkan, um, which of course is this, the, the best option for running on a Linux-based platform like uh, SteamOS, of course. So it seems to me like there's not that much more to say about this right now, but it is interesting that Valve seems to be going back to their titles now and making these changes uh, likely for the Steam Deck specifically. Um, and, you know, anything else is just kind of gravy. Like, I'm sure they're like, okay, well, we can add these features to Half-Life 2 now. That's no problem. But I think it's the Vulcan thing that's telling. And I'll be curious to see um, how this continues because I believe Portal 2 also was updated to Vulcan sometime earlier this year. So they're clearly going through their back catalog right now. And the thing is, though, is I, I, we know that uh, Steam Deck hardware units are out there now for developers is that right so they're, the testing is happening uh developers are working on it and i think right now the, it's just been quiet because you know the work is ongoing we know what the specs are uh it's just a matter of ramping things up as we get towards launch and making sure the existing steam back catalog that will run on the steam deck is in good shape for it right mm, i think they're using dxvk um kind of layer to to basically transpose uh, DirectX support into Vulkan. I don't have any experience with that. This is one of these things that we've wanted to take a look at in depth for quite some time, but possibly when we get the Steam Deck and look at Proton and this sort of thing, 
bit more uh, in depth. Um, but yeah, we've had um, sort of questions about, hey, it's all gone a bit quiet on Steam Deck. And I actually think Valve has got quite an interesting strategy here, which is that, well, first of all, we were invited to go to see the, the Steam Deck at Seattle, but unfortunately there's a presidential decree stopping people from the UK visiting America at the moment. So that was a no-go. Uh, that ends November the 4th. I don't know if there's anything we can do around that or just wait until we get actual hardware. And in terms of actual hardware, Valve's strategy seems to have been basically to um, give wide-scale distribution of devices to the developers and then allow the developers to show their games running on the system, which I think is really quite a, a canny move, sort of guerrilla marketing, if you like, almost sort of um, delegating the, the marketing of the device to developers, which I think is actually quite quite cunning. It's very Valve, though. It's very Valve. They love distributed stuff. You know, they, they, they did that for Team Fortress 2. They did it for a lot of the curation uh, as well for Steam in its initial launching days. Um, I, I, one thing that I think I recently read is that there also have dedicated people at Valve now that are going through the entire Steam catalog uh, with the XBK in mind or Proton and looking for compatibility and looking to essentially complete their DirectX translation layer. I, I think that's great. Uh, I, th I hope as a part of this curation too is the one thing that I mentioned back then is that there's some sort of settings recommendations or profiles uh, that are set up. Because, you know, all these games on Windows usually have, especially if you go to PC Game Wiki, they have configs. They have config files. Um, so if they somehow package those with the game that you download on Proton, uh, like the initial startup is already in Steam Deck config, which, you know, they can do that. They can literally do that if they wanted to. Like the Steam controller, the, stream, the Steam controller has all those profiles that are accessible even through big picture, right? And it kind of makes me consider, like, maybe they have a default config that they could use for Steam Deck, but what if they had, like, sort of community-based ones like the Steam controller, where essentially you could say, like, Alex's profile for the Steam Deck and just download that, um, you could literally do Alex's customized settings and put it out as a profile for the Steam oh Deck. Oh my if God. You uh, yeah. Or even what if it went beyond the Steam Deck and they just, I don't know, allowed <laughs> allowed this kind of thing. Like, I, I feel like that's kind of an interesting sort of take on PC game that hasn't really been capitalized on as much. I mean, the wikis are one thing, but having a way to adjust settings by just downloading configurations that other people have made is... It could be fun. This is an interesting one. Again, it's just turned up on the sheet today. Uh, essentially, now there's 120 hertz support for Dolby Vision on uh, LG CX, sorry, C10, sorry, LG. <laughs> um, displays. I'm assuming this is going to be rolling out to the C1 as well, uh, the C1 range. Um, John, some interesting stuff that's emerged from your testing here, right? The, the, the full story on this is that the C1 has had this support for a while now. Um, and LG has been promising uh, 4K 120 Dolby Vision for the CX slash C10 for months and months and months. It was in the engineering firmware for a long time. Uh, it finally started rolling out this month, first in Korea. Uh, but now it showed up in Europe as well and possibly other markets. In my case, I actually had to go to LG's website. It didn't pop up on the automatic updater on the TV, but from the website, you could actually choose this firmware to download, install it via USB, and there you go. Uh, they have continued to say that they they would like to introduce this for the C9 as well, 
but I'm not exactly holding out hope for that because there has been no evidence of it actually existing just yet, even though theoretically it should be capable. So we're going to have to wait and see on that. But essentially the idea is, you know, Xbox rolled out Dolby Vision recently, and it's a really nice option for displaying HDR content. Uh, and now you can use the full capabilities of the Xbox series consoles, 120 Hertz with Dolby Vision. But there's an interesting quirk slash feature that I uncovered when testing it. I almost hesitate to say it because I'm afraid LG will remove it, but I don't think this is intentional. This is sort of like they should have, this is like a pro thing. It's only for very specific circumstances. Essentially you can now use black frame insertion with VRR. This was not possible and it's still not possible in non an SDR mode or in HDR 10 mode, it's grayed out. But when you have Dolby vision on, you sure can turn it on. Uh, but the reason I say, I don't think it's intentional is because it's only really usable at 120 frames per second right now. Um, because if you try to use it at 60 frames per second or 60 Hertz, uh, it's, it's insane. The flicker, like it's, it's very visible, uh, difficult to look at flicker. So it's not, it wouldn't be recommended to use it that way, but I can say for sure that combining black frame insertion with 120 Hertz VRR in like, say Halo two anniversary, which is a good test, right? Uh, when you land on Delta Halo, that first grassy area, the frame rate does dip below 120. It's down into the nineties on Xbox. Um, and so I like playing these with black frame insertion because it completely gets rid of motion blur. I think we used halo Alex to, when I was demonstrating the benefits of this, even it's very, very nice. Uh, and combining this with black frame insertion is awesome. It looks really, really good. Uh, you actually do see some slight flicker as like it kind of, as the frame rate adjusts, it's subtle, but it's there. Um, but it's cool. So to me, it shows that this is technically feasible now. It can be done, but I can see why they would not want this enabled by default because clearly it doesn't work with 60 Hertz content like at all. <laughs> so it's not really something that they would want users to be doing, but by I would accident. really like oh them God. to al essentially allow this to continue, or at least maybe they can even go back and further tweak this and make it official. Um, but I'm, I'm very encouraged and kind of excited to see that it is technically possible now. I'd be curious if there's a way to scale the length of the black frame insertion uh, to scale with the frame rate to make flickering less visible or something like that, John. I, I'm not sure if that's possible or if that would really get rid of all the benefits of low persistence. Uh, but it feels like it should be doable after a certain threshold, VRR plus black frame insertion. It seems like it should be there. Well, there's actually three settings in there already that uh, adjust the length of the black frame. So oh, yeah, the high the is the high, one right? you want for the best. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think inherently it is pretty difficult to do this. And I'm actually even wondering if it, if it's even feasible when your frame rates at like 60, uh, just due to the nature of things like this is a, this is a piece. So this is a feature that's very, very, very select few PC monitors apparently allow the combination of VRR and, and ultra low motion blur, black frame insertion or whatever, but I haven't tested them myself. So I can't say what the caveats or limitations there are there. And I'm still not 100% certain it could be done at these lower frame rates, but as long as you're feeding it high frame rate content, it's uh, it seems to be a very, very effective solution. So 
I don't know. It's worth checking out. Just know that if you play something at 60 hertz on your Xbox and you have this turned on in Dolby Vision, um, take caution. It's uh, you're gonna you're gonna see flickering like you've never seen flickering before. Isn't the problem here that when you've got a variable refresh, that you've got to have your black frame to have a variable refresh as well? Correct. Exactly. So yeah, it's potentially it's a bit difficult. of a minefield. It could be a sort of here be dragons. Uh, oh, I, I think it is absolutely. <laughs> but we we but I can say that it actually does work. Like it does work in the conditions. It's it's suitable for 120 frames per second games that have slowdown. Essentially, that's that's where you're, that's where you would want to use this, and it does look good and it works correctly. So, uh, unfortunately, with with the way the Xbox works, I mean, you can't like only switch to 120 hertz for 120 fps games right it's a feels like that should be a profile thing so i kind of wish there was a way to flick it over to 120 only when a game supports that because then you could just kind of leave this on and not have to constantly adjust settings but that's just me being picky about (laughs) an option that not everybody's using so the actual variable rate though that does kind of concern me i reckon you should try um a plague tale innocence because uh, that that Ooh, seemed didn't they fix that though did they i don't know but when we looked at it I, essentially what i think they patched it what was happening there was that the game ran at anything from like 70 to 120 frames per second and i do wonder whether it would be a bit gnarly at the lower end that's my guess is i i feel like once you get maybe under a certain threshold the flickering becomes too significant and not really usable so i suspect that's kind of the issue i don't know this uh I can definitely see that this is probably very tricky to figure out in an effective way. And there really aren't many good examples of it that I've seen. So I don't know, but it certainly get the wheels turning. <laughs> well, that's it for the news this week. And um, we were going to have a DF content discussion as we usually do. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that we'd like to talk about is uh, under embargo. <laughs> Suffice to say, It's very exciting. I don't think you have to wait too long for it, but unfortunately, we just can't talk about it at the moment. I guess on the DF Supporter Program, Magazine Memories has just launched uh, for Retro Tier. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see John and Audi and potentially I'll join in at some point, discuss uh, specific slices of gaming history viewed through the lens of the magazines at the time. This is really interesting stuff. Um, But let's move on to Supporter Q&A. Okay, so this one, this question, first of all, from Dubuk Nathan. Sorry if I've mispronounced that. Um, This is actually, in theory, a bit of a no-brainer, but I actually quite liked the question, so I've put it in. Uh, Hi there, I've been thinking recently about frame pacing in movies. Most movies we watch are 24 frames per second. Well, it's not 23.87. Though I personally watch them on my 60 hertz screen. So there should be uneven frame pacing, right? Right. Or are video players able to get around this? If this is an issue indeed, are there any ways to work around it? It's kind of like yes on all fronts really, isn't it, John? Yeah, so there's multiple ways that this works. Uh, First of all, for actual 60 hertz screens, uh, traditionally they've used something called three by two pull down, where it is essentially, you know, display, it's a frame persistence thing where one frame will display slightly longer than another, where it's like two, two frames, then one, then three frames or something like that. But that, that still produces judder. That's not optimal. So it is uneven uh, frame pacing in movies. It, it is, it is absolutely. Um, yeah, by it's default. common to and see. Unfortunately, if you just watch like a DVD on like a CRT back in the day, 
as good as DVD could look, this this was a problem. You do get that judder. Um, but for years now, TVs have essentially been have solved this, I guess you could say, and in a multitude of ways. First of all, uh, 120 hertz, uh, 24 divides evenly into that. And most TVs, I know at least, when you feed them a 1080p or 4K 24 FPS signal, uh, they actually switch to a mode where you're getting each frame repeated for the exact same amount of time. So you get perfect frame delivery. Uh, and it's using the 120 hertz refresh rate to do that. And that's the default kind of mode. But there's other unique examples of this as well, like um, the Pioneer Plasma that I still have downstairs, the second generation Kuro Plasma. That actually has a bespoke 72 hertz mode uh, that it switches into when it gets 24 frames per second content. And so that means it's displaying, I guess, each frame, you know, three times, I guess. So, um, and that, so that delivers perfect frame pacing. So movies look excellent that way. Uh, there, there's certainly the thing about this is it's fun. There used to be some test scenes. One of the Star Trek films I think was really good for this, where it's like a long, slow pan across the star field with ships and everything. And if you, if you're not using the correct cadence, it's Judder City and it looks horrendous. Um, but yeah, I, I generally speaking, I think this problem is essentially solved. In the PC movie player space, John, is that what you're going to talk about next, perchance? <laughs> PC movie player space, I would say, is tricky because in those cases, I think um, you you want to be displaying a refresh rate that is divisible by 24 to make it work, essentially. And I think it should work if you do that. The problem is, is I think a lot of people, like if you load up like a laptop, most laptops are, you know, they're... 60 hertz or if they're high end they might be like 144 hertz and whatever you're using if it doesn't divide evenly into the refresh or into 24 it's not going to look right essentially there will be judder i think most people probably don't care that much but you're going to get that judder well i looked at uh back in the day i looked at this dell xps 13 two in one and the screen had a 48 hertz mode which is specifically for obviously for movie content it's 24 times two um so that's you know there are modes like that on certain screens there's a there's a series of panasonic plasmas from the late 2000s that actually had 48 hertz modes as well and curiously you could actually see them flicker a little bit kind of like 50 hertz pow content well that's the, that's the ultimate hack right for movies in powerland 50 hertz territory uh, basically instead of running the movies at 24 frames per second they just speed them up to 25 <laughs> movie yep. ends so like two minutes do, early they did yeah. they did do this Absolutely. you get a shorter <laughs> film duration uh but you do get a perfectly even presentation even frame pacing in movies uh but also some people's voices um is some people's voices tend to sort of work out okay um when they're sped up other people's you know they, you've got a kind of chipmunk effect also specifically affects music as well um, so, you know, let's say, I think the one that stood out for me back in the day was, uh, the living daylights, um, the bond movie, oh, the song, the song. song, yeah. song yep. uh, where it actually sounds kind of bizarre because obviously you're used to listening to the, to the music on, you know, like the radio or on a CD or whatever. And then you watch the movie and it's like, what's going on here? This isn't right. 
Uh, Pitching up. I think Oof. the other one which yeah. stood out to me back in the day when I didn't quite understand what was going on was um, Back to the Future, The Power of Love. It was on TV. I actually, yeah, I saw it on TV and then I went back to see it on uh, DVD and it was like, why, why is it so slow? It wasn't slow. It was actually correct. <laughs> But it's the inverse of uh, of games. Yes, exactly. The inverse of games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the so thing right. about this though is, I don't think there's any other solution they could have used. Right? If you just ran it at 24 frames per second within a 25 frames per second like window, like that would be bad. That would not look good at all. So I think this was like the best you could you could do. I also think back in the day there were problems with PAL DVDs because they were. Um, uh, putting movies out at 25 frames per second and they were resampling the audio to try to make it sound correct. Uh, and it didn't quite work out particularly well. But yes, this is a problem that has been solved, I think, because um, most screens do have some kind of, well, certainly the higher end ones, they anticipate that movies are going to be played on them and they need to be played correctly. Uh, then it's down to the media player, right? So um, I think something like the NVIDIA Shield would actually change the output frequency of the HDMI to support whatever the content uh, was running at, which I think is really good. I'm not sure if the consoles do that, but... Um, they they do they do, do that, absolutely. Okay, good stuff. Any device that plays Blu-ray movies or 4K Blu-ray movies seems to do this. Uh, it's only on PC where things get weird because then you have to rely on the software player to either do the conversion to the itself or technically you could set your pc to 24 hertz yeah yeah that, that's uh, one thing i've dealt with recently was i was trying to watch a movie that was definitely 23.97 uh frames per second and it was a little bit being a little bit troublesome but then you just look at something like mpc hc or whatever and they have a sub menu about this where it says it'll detect the frame rate and actually set the proper monitor mode it's like it's only works in exclusive full screen and you will actually see your monitor flicker to a new uh, refresh rate when this is happening. Oh, uh, so if you don't see added, that happening, that's awesome. Yeah. So there's, a, there's well, actually I mean, an automatic thing now. Yeah, well, it, I wasn't using MPCHC. I was using MPCBD, or I don't know. There's okay. so many forks of it now. <laughs> so it's one of those variants. You can find them, and they probably a number of them have this now. But it definitely is a thing. It definitely worked out. Uh, but I would say it wasn't so intuitive, and it may not work with every screen out there because. It's not always 23.97. Sometimes it's exactly 24. And oh, duh, who even knows at that point? Uh, so uh, in my humble opinion, um, <laughs> just kind of avoid it a little bit on PC at the moment, unless you're really dedicated about it. It's an issue on phones too, I think. Because um, most phones, if you're watching video content, uh, except for some of the higher end ones that are 120 hertz, most are only 60 and so films just inherently have judder on there. They do not seem to switch to a special mode or anything as far as I've seen. I don't even know how Netflix does this actually um, because it has a lot of content, which is 23, 24. It also has 30 content. So using the LG app and the OLED screen, it does actually seem to switch it to 24 hertz mode, uh, which is good. Um, I believe it does anyway, or at least it does seem to display it with the correct cadence. Um, so... And I guess that varies depending on the media player. I mean, that's built into the TV, so it can kind of do whatever it wants, I guess. Yeah, obviously. So yeah, yeah, just going back to the question, um, should there be uneven frame pacing in movies? Yes. Are video play players able to get around this? Yes. 
if there if this is an issue indeed are there ways to get around this and as alex said who knows at this point uh, well, <laughs> generally kind of yes generally, maybe yes. so yeah uh, so let's move on to the next question uh, this one from brian herlich uh, do you think DLSS will become such an attractive prospect for console manufacturers that by the start of the next generation that either Microsoft or Sony will switch to NVIDIA SOCs just to get it? Or do you think they will push their own AI-driven solutions, Alex? I don't think they'll go to N NVIDIA anytime soon because NVIDIA isn't offering an SOC um, that is in the power performance bracket that they're looking for. Maybe if they did, for some reason, have a an amazing ARM SOC that came out, uh, maybe they would look at it and consider it and perhaps breaking their backwards compatibility chain to do that, but I doubt it, I doubt it. Um, and uh, I think they would rather actually just uh, lean on whatever innovations AMD will come up with in this space, or like Microsoft, who has admitted that they're working on their own, regardless of whatever AMD is doing. Yeah, I think the concept of moving away from x86 is going to be quite challenging for um, console manufacturers that are trying to build persistent ecosystems across the generations. Uh, certainly, we're seeing that from Microsoft, where, you know, when you look at the, if you go back to the reveal of Xbox 360 games running, on um, Xbox One, just the concept that this was possible was kind of crazy. Um, you know, nobody thought it would happen, and yet they did it. But the work required to get there was simply immense. Meanwhile, you know, the transition from generations from Xbox One to, to Series X from PS4 to PS5 has been a lot more graceful. And I think I don't think uh, AI-driven upscaling is a good enough uh, reason to, um, to to kind of break away from that. And secondly, as Alex says, um, it's a technology that can be replicated. We're already seeing that um, Intel are looking to essentially take that technology and make it more open and to get it running on their own GPUs and to, pre and to present compatibility paths for every other vendor out there. So yeah, I, I would uh, expect to see NVIDIA retain its existing relationship with Nintendo. That kind of makes sense to me. But going forward, I can't see them shifting away from x86. Anything to add to that, John? No, not really. I think you guys pretty much got that. Okay, next question uh, from Dylan Samet. In your videos covering the remastered Crisis trilogy, you mentioned that Crisis 3 was really trying to push tech at the time, but it was held back by the limitations of Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. Are there any games that you feel were trying to be super innovative in terms of tech, but hardware held it back at the time and deserves a second chance on current systems? John, I can think of one colossal candidate here. It's tough to think of ones. I'm going way back to the 90s. I'm thinking on N64, you got Violence Killer, Turok, uh, New Generation, also known as Turok Two Seeds of Evil. Uh, that's, that's my favorite one for this because it, they were trying to push so much stuff like skeletal animation system, these like gigantic levels and like dynamic light sourcing all over the place. And just, it's ridiculous what they were attempting to do, but the N64 just folds like a house of cards and, uh, it runs, it's, it's horrible. It's basically unplayable on the original hardware. And to me, that always stands out as one of those games that runs so poorly it's shocking that they felt it was okay to release. 
that of course did get a second chance. I would also include like perfect dark in there as well, where they were just trying to do, they were trying to do so much with the hardware uh, and really pushing like technology in ways that the N64 just couldn't cope with. And yeah, it folds pretty hard. Well, the, uh, the, the big game that I was thinking of was obviously cyberpunk 2077, which <laughs> you know that's kind of super recent right where yeah. you know it, it it they've taken so much time to get it sort of functional on last gen systems but it's still only really acceptable on the playstation 4 pro for whatever reasons and uh the uh, the compromises to the vision i think are kind of unacceptable you've got a city with barely any people in it um so that one i think they should have waited and concentrated on the new generation of systems but I don't think they could have from a financial perspective. It just wouldn't have made sense. It's tricky because that one's still, you're right, recent. But some of the other ones I would have said in the past have received updates. Like, for instance, I think Far Cry 3 is a really good example of this, where uh, what they were trying to do, like, it's clear that those the PS3 and 360 just weren't up to the task, and the frame rate is usually in, like, 15 to 25 with nonstop tearing. I mean, they're they're horrible. It's insane that you would ever want to play it on those machines. But obviously... There was a really interesting, good game concept in there. And, well, the PC solved that on day one, but then there was sort of that remastered release, I think, um, that kind of solved it. And there's, I kind of feel like, in general, this applies to a lot of games during the PS360 era, where, especially in the latter half of that generation, like, games are just being released that were big-budget titles that just run, like, uh, they don't run well. Let's, let's just say, you know what I mean? It's, a, it's constant low frame rate, screen tearing all over the place, bad image quality. You can see that what they're trying to do with the technology, they're, the, the machines weren't ready for it. And I think, Alex, we were talking about this the other day where uh, I think on that generation of machines, it would have um, been smart to push slightly less advanced visual techniques in favor of clean image quality and performance. Like, you know, I did that Ridge Racer video. You hold up Ridge Racer 7. It's a 1080p 60 game. It holds up better than just about all of these games we're talking about on PS3. Uh, just by the nature of, you know, the tech, they knew the tech wasn't ready. So they used sort of tried and true rendering techniques. But those techniques are attractive. Like the, the end result is still beautiful. It doesn't need to be cutting edge. And it runs like a dream. Uh, and there was not nearly enough of that during that generation. Well, uh, the generation uh, bef behind that one that I was just recently thinking about was Shadow of the Colossus, where that game was uh, pushing like really cool IK systems, uh, really cool post-processing features, uh, and you know vistas and simulating transparency perfect usage. motion blur, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and you know like simulating HDR pipeline before that even existed uh, on that console. So and that ran horribly too. It's I, I put it in the unplayable territory for my eyeballs. Um, but that you know that got an, a port and then it got a remake. Um, and those are all great. Uh, so th thankfully, we have less and less of this over time due to uh, porting that has happened. Remasters are a bit of annoyance because I kind of feel like they're always just like, you know, they're just really releasing the game sometimes with very bare bones features. Um, 
I, you know, I, I have a conflicted opinion now about remastering at times. Uh, also, emulation has uh, been helping uh, these out recently. A lot of PS3 releases that have not seen porting are uh, becoming uh, coming to the playable realm right now uh, in uh, in the emulation space, which I'm really happy about. Uh, one that happened at the last of the end of the PS3 gen was kind of The Last of Us. It did not run super well on PlayStation 3. Um, I definitely remember that, and I kind of feel like one that's stuck on the PlayStation 3 as well is the the last, um, oh, the Insomniac shooter, uh, the last one, the third one, that's very much like Half-Life, John. Uh, oh, Resistance 3. Resistance 3 that is runs, still stuck. It runs fine, but... Yeah, but its image quality is super poor. I don't know. I, I would really love to see that uh, somehow updated one of these days, like a Resistance collection, uh, because, you know, those games, they're not super awesome, uh, but they're cool, they're technologically interesting for the time period, and I would like to see them leave those uh, the PS3 behind. I want to venture one more example that I think is possibly one of the best from my perspective, because it actually ultimately hurt the games. Thief, Deadly Shadows, and Deus Ex, um, whatever it was called, the, the second one, Invisible War. Uh, so what they were, that was the, they wanted to bring these series to consoles, first of all. So they, they targeted the Xbox, which very capable machine, of course, but still limited in terms of memory and other things like that. Uh, they also wanted to use, they used Unreal Engine, but they wanted to push sort of a unified like lighting and shadow model where everything cast shadows and, you know, lots of dynamically lit scenes. And they pulled that off. The problem is though, is that what this ended up meaning for the game was that every single stage had to be subdivided up into these tiny little zones. So there's loading screens everywhere, like everywhere you go. And this was something that was so critical to the fundamental fabric of Thief and Deus Ex. And so by essentially getting rid of that, shrinking the game, uh, it kind of really hurt it. Like I think Thief still turned out pretty good, all things considered, but Deus Ex suffered a lot from this. And this is just a case of their... They had these ambitions for what they wanted to do visually. They went for it, and the machine just couldn't deliver what they wanted to achieve, and the game suffered as a result. And even if you play it on PC, it does not matter because the core game itself was impacted by this decision. Let's move on. Next question, Abby Coley. Uh, what are your favorite TAA implementations, or what were the early highlights? I've noticed Judgment on Next Gen has a great deal of shimmering, shimmering slash dithering in the 60 FPS mode. One thing you've talked about before is Insomniac's TAAU. I know early implementations like The Order or Uncharted quickly impressed me during the PS4 Gen. Uh, John? If he's asking about early highlights, this might be a controversial thing, but I'm going to say that I actually think Crisis 2's original anti-aliasing for the time period was pretty interesting and smart. Uh, it's, it's very flawed now, right? Like the DX9 approach. But I think considering you could really see what they were trying to solve with that solution. And I think it was really pretty effective at the time of release. And it was kind of a good step forward. I mean, you compare that to like, say... Halo Reach, that was terrible. which tried, and that was just Ghosting City. <laughs> it was awful. Crisis 2 was dramatically better. That was better. essentially jitter samples, yeah. right? It was, yeah. Mm, it is, yeah. I mean, it, you know, they were trying to solve th that problem, but... Mm. <laughs> Alex, any thoughts on this? I thought Rises was really good. That came out uh, early. Uh, that looked really good when it came out. Crytek again. 
Crytek again. Um, but they, you know, they were working there. They were still like, uh, they were working with people outside of Crytek to get anti-aliasing. That's how SMA started at that point in time. Um, and other early ones, uh, ooh. I think maybe uh, Rainbow Six say. Siege deserves some kudos. Yeah, that's a, They were that's trying a good to one. do, yeah. um, uh, wasn't it like checkerboarding, basically? An early, early yeah. form of checkerboarding. Yeah, actually, it was like the MSAA trick yeah, or whatever. actually arrived using. before mm-hmm. uh, the PS4 Pro where this kind of technique good was point. really kind of um, required. And actually, if we're talking about um, sort of more modern uh, techniques, kind of all kicked off with PS4 Pro because suddenly developers were faced with a 4 teraflop, 4.2 teraflop GPU that needed to be able to power a 4K display. And I remember when I first went to, um, to see the Pro, uh, it was really interesting to see all the software that was lined up because For Honor looked really good. And I don't think you could tell that it was running at native 1440p. Similarly, we got our first look at uh, Marvel Spider-Man. Uh, as the, uh, yeah, very similar technique there, which I still think holds up, which I still think looks tons better than, say, you know, FSR on PC. Um, there's some really sort of impressive stuff that was done quite early on there. This kind of doesn't count, but in my mind it does a little bit. The PlayStation 2 and its field rendering modes. Because effectively, you're literally alternating uh, odd and even scan lines rapidly on a CRT screen. So they were getting away with sometimes drawing like only 224 lines per frame. But the effective result looks like a 448 or 480, you know, line game. Uh, and some of the developers went really crazy with this. Like, of course, Ezra Driesback and them from Lobotomy did a Bowder's Gate Dark Alliance on the PS2, which does some kind of crazy per field, like super sampling, where it's almost like they're effectively rendering out like 1280 by 224 or something. Some really weird kind of resolution uh, where it's not actually that, but they're, they're merging the frames in such a way that gives it this super sampled look on a CRT which is really impressive to behold, but it's ultimately kind of like a rendering trick using the characteristic of the display. So uh, the question here is talking about uh, the order 1866, but I'm pretty sure that was 4X MSAA. Yeah, that was MSAA. It was uh, two, four, it was uh, four X, four X CSAA or whatever it is, EQAA. And then a, then a TAA pass as well. So there was TAA yeah, in there. TAA pass, okay. Yeah, that's how they got the... I mean, the game is pretty slick looking. Absolutely. It uh, is still, still today. Yeah, so. Uh, I think, but like in modern modern stuff, I actually, uh, a lot of people on PC don't like it, but I actually like Filmic uh, SMAA from the Call of Duty games quite a bit. I think they have, they allow you to choose the level of sharpness uh, uh, that I think is very nice. Uh, that's usually, it's not done with the sharpening slider. It's actually like changing how the, how it converges. Uh, which I think is really nice. And I kind of want to say I like the IdTech uh, TS, 8X TSAA. I think that's pretty good. Okay, let's move on to the next question from Sabak. <laughs> I love that name. Uh, would, you, would you ever consider making shorter videos, perhaps covering games the team are less interested in, but viewers have requested, or patches for games you've covered already that make a noticeable change to performance? More of an overview lasting around five minutes to go alongside the usual in-depth video. 
would this be feasible or would it go against the DF ethos mm-hmm. <laughs> too much? <laughs> uh, I don't know, Alex. I don't know. If I'm not covering a game that I like, it's hard to make the content in general. I don't know. It's weird. I don't, I don't know. I, I think the answer to this is pretty simple. And I think this fundamentally shows a lot. This is a good education moment of what it takes to make these videos, right? The length of the video is not the reason that they take X amount of time to make. It's the research that has to be done to get the data, right? You have to capture the game. You know, when you, when you take in capturing the different versions, you take into account uh, the pixel counting necessary to get the resolution stuff, like just getting the information um, is the time consuming part. So if, if we just made a five minute video out of that, it wouldn't actually save much time at all. It would take basically just as long really. Uh, and you know, we would get a lot less out of it. And even then, like if it's multiple versions of a game, like five minutes, isn't even really enough to say everything necessarily. So it's not really feasible and it doesn't really make sense. It's enough to get the raw metrics out there, but you know, this kind of returns us to where DF was in 2015, 2016, where we did make five minute videos. And, uh, you know, I don't think they were as interesting as the content we put out today. And I realize there's. I also don't, I don't like making them. And, you know, <laughs> if, they're not, they're not in terms make. of um, this, this sort of concept of, uh, you know, covering patches and getting the raw metrics and stuff, uh, again, I'm going to talk about VG Tech, who does some excellent work. Uh, underappreciated YouTube channel. Uh, check it out. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there is uh, people out there that will take a look at this stuff, but it's, um, I guess the problem there is similar to what we have, which is that, you know, just sourcing all of these metrics is uh, is time consuming in itself. All that we really save is a bit of editing time. And, uh, and that's about it really. And fundamentally we can, talk about our experiences of the game for free almost you know so it's 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 not just about the metrics it's about what we think of them and just going back to a, a example uh, analogy that i've used many times in the past which is you know let's say you're about to buy a car and okay i want to know the the naught to 60 okay so you get a number what what are you going to do with that number not a lot what don't you want to know what the reviewer thinks about the car that's kind of a bit more important um, you know, maybe it's the the sort of bias of information shifts when you're talking about tech analysis, but um, it's okay to have the numbers, um, but what do those numbers mean? And um, if we can get that information across, um, then we should do it because the actual overhead is just, you know, a bit more time in the editing process. That's, that's about it, really. Uh, final question. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, user with the fascinating hacker alias james the naked snake (laughs) (laughs) okay fair enough (laughs) metal gear solid 3 fan um question which console generation not a specific system uh, would you hate to go back to more than the rest john uh early 80s 8-bit consoles uh anything (laughs) pre-nes Uh, I, I actually had some of that stuff growing up, but I, I don't, I don't really enjoy it. So you're not an Atari VCS man. Mm-mm, nope. Not at all. Yeah. It's, it's, that's just a, that's a bridge too far for me. Okay. 
Alex. That's actually, you know, I was originally going to say something a bit more biting, but that is actually pretty true because those game experiences, those game experiences are very short. Uh, sometimes due to the lack of system memory, they're very shallow. I think, you know, if they had more system memory, they could be, they could be a little bit more depth. Like you'd see on the PC, you could see like PC games in the eighties, you know, you could have like long-term adventures, but like those consoles back then, um, a little bit less so. Using the term system memory kind of doesn't even apply. Yes, like the VCS is literally drawing. <laughs> reading like, from a tape. You're, you're drawing as the beam scans down the screen, right? It's, it's yeah. insane. <laughs> So I think that those are really rough to return to. There are some fun-looking games visually from that time, just that that just look nostalgic. Uh, but I don't think I could play them uh, so much so these days. So when he says which console generation, it's all of them before the NES. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. if you're thinking a bit more modern, the problem is that um, you know that you can't really do that. I guess. Uh, we've lamented the general downturn in performance from the PS360 generation. We talked about it just now, in fact. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if we're not allowed to talk about specific systems, I still think in terms of longevity of the, you know, if we're talking about NES upwards, the longevity of a particular system's games, um, frame rate really does have a big impact on that. And I think, you know, N64 has some issues in uh, in in still holding up today, you know, Goldeneye at ten to twelve frames per second. <laughs> it's actually not that low. That's perfect dark. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. That, well, I'm pretty sure the four player was, uh, was that low. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's a quite an interesting question. I did the metrics on uh, N64 once, and I believe I can't remember the exact number, but it's under ten games that run at sixty frames per second on N64. How many of them are two D? I wonder. There's basically no 2D games on N64. I mean, there's like a few, but barely any. Uh, versus like Saturn and PlayStation. Like PlayStation has like 200 something games that are 60 FPS. Some are 2D, some are 3D. And Saturn is kind of similar in terms of its overall library. Like they actually have a, a solid amount of 60 FPS games, but not the N64. <laughs> so not exactly the most entertaining answer there, uh, James the Naked Snake. Um, but... There it is. Okay, so look, we're going to wrap this up now. Um, thanks so much for joining us for this uh, DF Direct. And of course, if you like the content, please do like, subscribe, slash, share, ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. DF supporter program, get involved, join the team. We're on Discord, uh, talking about all manner of stuff. And it's a great place to be. Plenty of bonus material, early access. It's all awesome, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching.